Right now, you can get both Sprint's unlimited plan and the iPhone XR with its amazing camera included for just $35 per month per line for five lines. All you need is approved credit and 24-month installment billing. No trade-in required. Visit a Sprint store, Sprint.com, or call 800-SPRINT-1. Phone $15 a month after monthly credit supplied within two bills. If canceled early, remaining balance due. Unlimited basic. After 630-20, pay $32 a month per line with AutoPay. Data deprioritization during congestion. Speed maximums, use rules, and restrictions apply. Right now, you can get both Sprint's unlimited plan and the all-new Samsung Galaxy S10 included for just $35 per month per line for five lines. All you need is approved credit and 24-month installment billing. No trade-in required. Visit a Sprint store, Sprint.com, or call 800-SPRINT-1. Phone $15 a month after $22.50 a month credit apply within two bills. If cancel early, remaining balance due. Unlimited basic after 630 20 Pay $32 per month per line for five lines with auto pay data deprioritization during congestion. Speed maximums, use rules, and restrictions apply. for listening to Uncle Sam's Soccer Podcast, keeping you up to date with the latest in American soccer. And don't forget to subscribe. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Uncle Sam's Soccer Podcast. I'm Stephen Jodron. Joining me as always, Jake Watroba and Armand Kafai. On this week's episode, we finally have a head coach. Greg Burhalter has been announced by the Federation. We give our reaction to the 400 plus day wait to have a head coach. We also discuss MLS Cup 2018. We have Jamie Goldberg of the Orgornian calling in to chat Timbers. Doug Robertson of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution chatting MLS Cup in Atlanta because that's where it's going to be and United follow us on Twitter Uncle Sam Soccer Pod we always enjoy your feedback and comments so continue to send them in don't forget you can find the show on any major podcast platform we were recently added to Spotify now let's get to today's show Armand tell me you're not having like 60 degree weather down there no, I we're not. It's like 40 right now. It's really cold for us, you know, native Texans. Um, I know I'm about to get. Uh, hey, hey, I know Jake's like prompting up a response saying, you know, you don't have to deal with snow and like you know negative weather. You know, like it's it's cold. I'm I'm weak. Like I I can't handle I can't handle this cold weather. So it was like 70 a couple days ago though. So it's really nice. No, no, uh, soft. Oh, 100 soft. I don't care. Soft, soft. I'm, 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 I'm baby Charmin ultra soft when it comes to that weather, bro. Come on. Soft launch United FC right down there in Texas. Soft. <laughs> no, Jake, um, did you watch Thursday night MLS Cup games? No, because I told you, I told the listeners what happened, so I didn't need to, to watch it. Did and you, I was right. Did you predict Portland was going to make it, though? I don't, I don't think I ever named a winner, but I did say there would be goals. I said you have no, you have no, you shouldn't watch Atlanta Red Bulls, and uh, I was right about that. I think I turned it on for about five minutes, and I was like, "Yep, I don't need to watch this. This is stupid." And then uh, I didn't. I told everybody don't watch Portland SKC because you know it's just. I, I, I said it was gonna be boring, 
And then I coincidentally said after that, actually, because I've said that now, there will be multiple goal, goals scored in that game. I think I predicted 4-3. It ended up being 3-2. But no, I didn't, I didn't. I don't know. I just didn't. I didn't watch it. <clears throat> Sorry. <laughs> well, we'll talk MLS Cup playoffs later in the show. Let's talk about the big news. Woohoo, guys. U.S. soccer finally have a, has a head coach. And, Armand, initial reaction goes to you. Woohoo! Is, is, is that the reaction we're going for? Or That was so or delayed. Am I, supposed to be like, am I supposed to be elated or like what, what, what's going on? It's... I, I like it, guys. Like, hey, I'll say it right now. I like Rick Berhalter as a coach. Maybe you, you guys do? thought I hated him. I like him as I, I like him as a coach. I, I like him. Uh, I like the tactical experience he brings. I like the little bits of experience he has. I just hated this whole, um, what's, I guess, hiring process as a whole. I've hated all of that. But overall, I think Berhalter's a good coach. I don't know why it took them over a year to hire him, but, you know, uh, it's U.S. soccer, so everything's like delayed, like by five minutes or something like that. Five minutes is that the delay for uh, U.S. soccer? More like a year. Well, 13, 13 months to be exact. Four hundred days. Four hundred plus days. No, no, four hundred. Yeah, make sure. Yeah, it was well, well over four hundred days. Hey, look, look, I've been studying a lot, guys, but math isn't my for, uh, specialty. So, that, you're an econ good. major. It's supposed to be. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. Jake, Burhalter, yeah. we've known forever. Like, it, it, what do you want us to say? Like, this is not some sort of shock where it's like, you know, Ireland or I am shocked, Stephen. I don't, th- I don't think I understand. I have been shocked. It's not like I've heard like five media outlets tell me that Greg Burhalter is going to be the coach in like June. I, for <laughs> one, am shocked. No, you but sound more shook than shocked. Well, <laughs> I'm both. Do we know Greg Berhalter's resume? Do you? I do. Yeah, he he, he he has ninety plus wins and like eighty plus losses. I know that. He coached in Sweden, right? Sweden, right? Hammerby in Sweden. He got fired after a year and a half. Um, he has a UEFA A license. I didn't know that. We're happy for him. Um, nice guy. Uh. Got Giassi Zaris's career back on track. Has done a lot with limited resources. Uh, his, his brother is the CEO of U.S. Soccer. Uh, so no no nepotism in there. Um, clearly, uh, it, everything is all good in terms of the hiring process. I mean, everything is fine. Look, Greg Berhalter on the field. Like I said, I think is a good. I think is a good fit. He's actually, I think, one of the more smarter tactical minds. In soccer, I was actually pointed out to this uh, by um, uh, Harrison Crow of American Soccer Analysis. He pointed out to me how Giassi Zardes actually um, he he's not involved in that much of the build-up play, but he always they always end up getting a shot on goal with him getting the shot, and it kind of shows the beauty of how Greg Berhalter wants more creative wings uh, compared to you know relying specifically on like a Zardes type player or something like that. And the U S here's the thing. A lot of people mention how on the field he'll kind of, he'll doesn't have a Frederico Inguain. I guess you could say that's a Christian Pulisic, but I mean, coaches adjust. That's what they do. But off the field guys, I've hated it. And I know you guys have too. Well, <clears throat> credit to uh, Doug McIntyre uh, who, who was on the show. What Jake two weeks ago, 
And he timelined us U.S. soccer. And we know that U.S. soccer has been in shambles. But what what annoys me more so than ever is the the fact that there were not, not more names linked. Doug McIntyre, re, what's in the recent 10 days, two weeks after he was on our show, we, we asked him about Oscar Pereira. And he came out with a tweet saying, well, there was some sort of link. U.S. soccer spoke with Pereira. But... How often did we hear names who were interested in the job, but U.S. Soccer said no? It's like Greg Berhalter was the guy from the get-go, and he is walking into an environment where the expectation or the the lack of clarity, the lack of motivation, progression in the last 13 months, all is on the weight of his shoulders. And if he comes off in a slow start, I think there should be reason to blame the U.S. soccer for not giving him these last three months with, you know, six friendlies at his disposal to start organizing the team that the way he wants to. I mean, it's not like these players get together all that often. Yeah, the international break comes at annoying points during the season, but these players go back to their club teams and they are way more familiar with players that are in of different countries than they are you know, uh, uh, with their fellow nationals. I mean, you want to hear something really crazy is Burhalter has a monumental task in front of him. And the reason why I say monumental is, um, I don't know if y'all saw the MLS rewind with Tara Twelman, but he had an interview with P- Michael Parkhurst and Parkhurst goes on to say, yeah, some players viewed getting cut up to the national team as a chore. And instead of being excited, they were all like, Oh, we got to go back up there again. You have to change that mentality. And now U.S. soccer has has put a lot of burden on Berhalter's shoulders that honestly shouldn't be there. It's not his fault that it took him over a year to decide uh, whether they want to, you know, hammer out some details here and there and get him hired. It's not his fault. But to the public perception, it is his fault. And there's two very interesting narratives that, are, that have been going on. And I've been seeing them all throughout uh, Twitter. One is Greg Berhalter is not a good coach. That's not true. He's a good coach. Other is, oh, the U.S. hiring process was much more in-depth than you think. That's not true either. You don't interview two candidates and say, wow, this is the most in-depth conversation, in-depth interviews I've had. I bet you FC Dallas is interviewing more than two people. And I guess their coaching search is more in-depth than U.S. soccer. So my, there's just so much going on, but do you guys think that the U- U.S. soccer kind of screwed Burhalter in terms of putting a lot of pressure on him? Yes, I do think that – I do think they put him behind the eight ball right away. Like you, like Steven alluded to, he didn't have six friendlies or however many friendlies it was for the last three months to kind of dink around with the lineup and get the team set and to how he likes it and kind of give his players expectations for what they want to do and what he wants to see from them. Uh, instead now he's got, and this is what I'll be interested to see too. I think, I think you both will agree on this is how quickly can Greg Berhalter flip the switch now on this, on this uh, team and get them to being competitive again. Cause, cause for the last three months, they have not looked very competitive. I mean, Steven went on a rant, I think uh, last week or two weeks ago about how terrible they looked against Italy and England and Colombia and Brazil. And, you know, it, it'll be interesting for, for me to see, cause I'm sure, cause they have a January camp coming up here and then I'm sure they have a couple friendlies between then and the gold cup. It'll be interesting to me to see how he gets the team set up to how he wants it and how motivated. I want to see another thing too, is I, I think under Dave Sarakin, the players didn't look very motivated to, uh, to, 
to play for the national team just because there was this cloud hanging over them as, you know, this guy, Dave Sirikin, he's not going to be the manager. So what am I really like? What 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 is the point in all this? I mean, this he, I mean, what Parker said, some players thought it was a chore. I mean, that, that's all you got to say. If going to the national team is more of a chore than an honor, then something is very, very wrong. No, I, I agree, Armand, and I'll be up to Burhalter to, like you said, change that mentality and, and get these players to want to put on the red, white, and blue and, and go out there and and represent their country. And, and they're going to have a he, – he and the team are going to have a very big test here in about six or seven months when they got to play for the Gold Cup. I mean, you could just tell that the players weren't motivated. I mean, look how they played against Italy. It was just more of a nuisance than actually enjoying the – you know, representing the red, white, and blue, the Yanks. There, there was nothing in the last three months where you saw, uh, apart for Miazga's short joke on, I don't remember which his uh, Mexican player. Diego Linez. Linez. There was no punch from this team. And you would think under an interim coach that he would just sit there and go, guys, just go have fun. What, what, his tactics have no relevancy on what Greg Berhalter is going to do in January and for however long he is the coach of USA. So I blame Sarah can for the last three months for the lack of motivation. The fact that people thought it was more of a chore. I blame us soccer that Berhalter to no fault of his own walks into a room full of expectations. I mean, what are we expecting? Quite frankly, I'm expecting nothing because it's been such a disaster for the last 13 months. Problem is, we're going to start winning, or if Berhalter starts winning ways, what are we going to do? I There's just – it is so – it's like molasses. It's so slow-moving. It's predictable. U.S. soccer is so predictable that, uh, A, they make the worst mistakes possible, and then, B, you just know what they're going to try to fix it up. They're going to fix those issues. So everything's predictable. Uh, everything is, and I just – I don't – I don't understand why it took so long, but at this point, the, the thing that sucks is it, it's no time to ask any more questions. It's time to just move on. I think Grant Wall really encapsulated all of this in his article, in his little column, talking about all the issues that came with uh, the hiring, the lack of a thorough process. And I'm also starting to see some narrative changing right now that, hey, the process was very in-depth. Let's not get it twisted. That process was not in-depth regardless of what anyone says. Regardless of what anyone says, that process was not in-depth. If you're going to go through and say, all right, we only interviewed formally two people. And the two people, I guess, were Oscar Pereja and Greg Berhalter. That's it. But no no, no one else going to get a shot, not even a Tata Martino or something like that. Like, can we just like, Acknowledge that USA that the USSF did a terrible job in this hiring process, and not try to shift this narrative into no, nah, they did a great job. Because I feel like we're we're gonna get to that point where we're gonna say, wow, they they really interviewed so many people and whatnot. It was just amazing. They they didn't do it. But guys, are y'all so your expectations for Burhalter is nothing, Stephen Jake? What about you? I guess expectations for what this next qualifying cycle or. I mean, expectations to, I guess, what he'll bring. Like, you, you, do you think he'll be a successful manager or? Well, 
I mean, what? anything's be better than Dave Sarakan for what we've seen last <laughs> year. And, and I think I think he'll definitely be better than what Bruce Arena did. And I'll be curious to see how he utilizes. Because I think you, I, I think Armand, you'll agree with me, Stephen. I'm not so sure about you, just because I kind of heard your takes on U.S. soccer and the talent. But I'll I'll be interested to see. I, I feel like U.S. soccer hasn't had this much attacking talent in quite some time. And I'll be interested to see how he utilizes guys like Timothy Weah and, and Christian Pulisic and Josh Sargent and Tyler Adams. We can talk about Tyler Adams here in a little bit as he makes his move to uh, Leipzig. Um, mm-hmm. I'll, be in, I'll be interested to see how he utilizes those guys and, 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 and see if maybe the philosophy changes with U.S. soccer instead of being defensive and in, in most of their matches and they want, and maybe they'll come out and actually express themselves and, and actually try to play with some of these, some of these bigger teams. Yeah, but we're still in CONCACAF. Like, we could play 12 straight friendlies against Brazil, Argentina, Spain, Germany, Italy, England, and go on through the list. And we're still going to be in CONCACAF. So, is it possible that we failed again to qualify for the World Cup in 2022? I mean, like, let me remind listeners, the fact that we failed to qualify in 2018 was one of those really rare 1 in 29 statistic of every outcome had it to had to go the way it did. If one goal was, you know, went a different way, indeed we would be talking about how the U.S. had played at the World Cup under Bruce Arena for a second time, and quite frankly, I, I would have predicted it's three straight L's the way that, you know, U.S. soccer has been trending the last six months, especially with what's going on on the field. So... I the expectations with Burhalter in Concacaf is what get get us to the World Cup. Quite frankly, I don't care if we finish fifth, second, or first. What what I'm more what I'm more worried about is is this team going to have some heart? Are we going to see some soul, some passion? Where hey, the U.S. is playing, they're fun to watch because quite frankly, Armand, you were quite excited to see them with this whatever lineup it was against Italy, and after 20 minutes, you gave up because it was just a lack of effort from the oh, team. it was terrible. Right? It was it was yeah. awful. So I have no idea what I'm supposed to expect with Burhalter. And are the players going to show the fans that, yes, this means something to me. Yes, these sh- the, you know, when I put on this shirt, I'm going to have some fire and some passion. Because the I last— I they don't, Stephen. I feel like they don't. I'm sorry to interrupt you. It's kind of I'm going a different tangent. I feel like they don't. I feel like they kind of. It's kind of. They kind of. It's like an expectation. I feel like a lot of the uh, the generation has been spoiled a little bit, and it's it's kind of like, oh yeah, we're we're part of the U.S. national team. Who cares? I want to see some fire and passion in some people, like you said. I'm trying to see some heart from from the na- from the national team. I'm trying to see everyone hands over their heart. National anthem and just blaring. No, 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 no. I don't want hands over heart. I want them having arms linked with each other, side by side. Okay, whatever, whatever, whatever. You're screw the screw the hand over the heart. I don't know. We're we're a team. Wait, wait, wait. Why are we why why are we debating how uh, a group of individuals does the national anthem? No, Jake. There's actually statistics. I mean, don't. There's statistics to prove that when you belt out your national anthem, you perform better. I don't believe it. Anyway, I, I will pull. I, will, I think the U.S. I'll pull it up I in the break. Matt Miazga, and then go ahead, pull it up. I'm not going to believe you, but I'm going to cut you both off here. I think Matt Miazga, when they played a game against Mexico that mattered to them, showed some heart, 
and showed some grit and t- some tenacity when I putting on that shirt. I saw more heart in the U20 game than I did in the U.S. Men's National Team game. Again, again, these these players outside of that Mexico game had no direction. They had nothing. They they didn't know. They don't know where they're going to stand with any of the, the, the new manager six months from now. I, I think a lot of them. Then why the don't motions, you? I think a lot of them just didn't care to to play. No, I, I don't look at the players and go, "Wow, they suck." That's that's horrible, and they didn't have their hand over their heart from the national nonsense. Anthem. I think Jake. it was a bunch of individuals nonsense. who didn't know what was expected of them and just were going through the motions. And I think you can see that in any any team. That's I nonsense. I, no, I like and like I said. I'm not sure if I said this on the last podcast or two podcasts ago. I cannot look at any performance from this national team over the last uh, year and draw any conclusions or say they met my expectations or didn't meet my expectations because Dave Sirikin was the manager, and you can't draw anything from it. Now that Greg Berhalter is here, give me to the World Cup, and I'll tell you – or not World Cup, the Gold Cup, and I'll tell you where where this team stands. But I I, – I, I think we're we're looking too much into Dave Sirkin and, and, and the team's performance uh, over the last six months to to say one way or the other if this team is bad or good or has doesn't have any heart or doesn't want to play for the national team. That's nonsense because if you're a player and you don't know if you're going to have a roster spot in January, why not go out there and perform your ass off? Because I know the guy I'm playing for isn't the guy that's going to be selecting me I don't care. January. This is about you personally. This is about you as the individual making sure that you have a spot with Burhalter. If I'm Burhalter, I would call up none of the last the, the oh, last call up. On, whoa, 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 whoa. How many times we sit here on this podcast and complain about the formations and the tactics used by Sarakan? You don't think the players go, "Wow, this is really stupid." What the what the No, hell you're are we right. Doing but here? I would shoot I would put I would, if I were Burhalter, I would put the hammer down and be like this is you have to earn your place here on the national team. It is not a given right that just because you play for a Borussia Dortmund or you just got transferred to Manchester City or RB Leipzig, if if Tyler Adams isn't playing at Leipzig, I would be like, you're not getting playing time. You're not getting called up. Right. So, so you're saying the Dax McCarty's of the world are going to get called up to the national team and, and the mixed disc recruits and no, guys no, like that. That's what no, no, no. If you're a talented player, you should play at the club you're at. Now, Stefan being a backup keeper, fine. It's the manager's job to get these players ready and motivated to perform. Yeah, but the players bear some sort of self-responsibility here for the lack they of motivation. Do, again, bear, Sarah Can no cannot direction. scream at, at midfield to whoever is playing against Italy to pick it up. Saying, you're saying don't call up Christian Pulisic the next the next international. No, uh, I would call up uh, the. I would. I fine. Call up Christian Pulisic. Maybe I don't care. Why? You you said during that Italy game. Wow. Or maybe maybe it was the England game before that. You even said, Wow, Christian Pulisic looks. He looks really bad out there. He looked bad against Italy and England. I think it's because he's surrounded by crap and nobody knows how to use him I properly. I, I, I think. I think. I just think he didn't care. Well, that too. Then don't call him up. Tell him, look, you're the most talented player this country has ever produced. You're going to earn your spot just like the next Joe down the line. Shoot him the message and say, you're not going to just come up here just because you played Bruce or Dortmund and have a $90 million price tag over your head. That's not how it works. That is becoming arrogant, and that's exactly what's going to lead us to failure. It also led Germany to failure too when they didn't call up uh, Leroy Sané. <laughs> it's, it, apples and it's, oranges it's, it's, 
Jake. It's I- such an interesting – but I, I want to ask you guys this uh, before we uh, head to the break. Do you guys think Berhalter calls up a more MLS-heavy squad or or, or is he going to take more of a Jurgen approach? Pick the best players for the job. I don't care where they play. Just pick the best players. And, and there should not be some sort of status quo or some sort of quota – on how many players should be selected from X or from Y. Who gives a rat's ass on it? Pick the best players. And I frankly said, don't pick the players that were up last. Shoot them a message say you have to earn your ass up here. This is not going to work. Burhalter should come out hard and gain the respect. Because under Bruce Arena, we know European-based players look at MLS coaches differently. Why? Because MLS is still looked down upon. We'll see but, how that but works Paul out. But Holter is different in terms of he's coached overseas. You're right. You're right. Oh. But does that does not leave the perception of you're still coming from MLS. Uh, Jake, final thoughts? Uh, I think he'll generally pick the best players available. I would not be shocked. Will trap. <laughs> if we, yeah, if we see some bias towards some of his Columbus crew players and you see – uh, Will Trapp and, and Jossie Zardes up with the national team to begin with. I mean, uh, I mean, let's be real. Uh, Greg Berhalter got this job because he played Jossie Zardes in his natural position and not at right back. So uh, I think we will see. Maybe we might see some uh, more Jossie Zardes uh, early on in his tenure with the with the national team. I don't think it's gonna be Bruce Arena like though, where he it's strictly MLS players and some of the old guard. I, I think Berhalter will dip a lot into the youth in Europe, and I think you'll see. Some some MLS players too, so I'm excited. I'm excited to see where this thing goes. Alrighty, well, Doug Robertson up next. Alrighty, listeners, joining us right now is Doug Robertson. He is an Atlanta United beat reporter for the Atlanta Journal Constitution. You can follow him on Twitter at Doug Robertson. A J C, how we doing, Jug? I'm fine. How are y'all? We're doing good. We're doing good, Doug. I gotta ask you first off, what is the kind of I guess atmosphere in the city like? Uh, you know, after Atlanta United got into the MLS Cup, uh, I've been seeing lots of videos and stuff like that of kind of some Falcons games kind of being very empty, but. Uh, many people at watch parties for Atlanta United and whatnot. So, what's the what's the feel like in the city? Well, the game was you know seventy thousand tickets sold out uh, in less than two hours. So people are are pretty excited. They're pretty fired up. Um, you know, it's the last chance that they'll get to see Gerardo Martino and Mercedes Benz. Probably the last chance they'll get to see Miguel Almiron. Uh, they're going against a team that they think they can handle. Uh, but I think the Timbers are going to be a tough out. So it's going to be fun. You know, the Falcons haven't had a good season. The Braves season is done. The Hawks aren't very good. Georgia just got its heart broken uh, by Alabama. So I think that the city is looking for uh, one last chance to get a winner before the end of the year. Now, now, Doug, when Atlanta had lost the Supporter Shield, what was the feeling surrounding the club? Was it another, like, here we go again with an Atlanta team having – success and then ultimately failing uh you know that's been a storyline uh in the end i think it may have been the best thing for the club 
um, the way they lost to Red Bulls and the way they lost to Toronto uh, was kind of eye-opening for them and, and changed their their approach, I guess, or their the way the intensity with which they're playing. Um, they're much tougher right now. They're much more physical. They're much more direct than they were in those games. Um, they're a little more flexible uh, with the tactics. Gerardo Martino, uh, after watching kind of some mistakes lead to some bad goals scored by Toronto, decided that minimizing those types of mistakes were the key to winning the playoffs. And so that's the approach that Atlanta United has taken. Doug, you, you mentioned this on Twitter a couple of days ago. Uh, it, it was a, a question you asked to your followers, and I wanted to get your thoughts and opinions on this. Uh, essentially, you had asked, uh, had, had New York Red Bulls uh, not beaten Atlanta in September, would we have seen a different approach from United in the playoffs? Uh, what, what are your takes on that? I think you might have. Um, I think that the Toronto game could have just been considered a one-off, uh, similar to the season opening loss against Houston. Uh, that was four to nothing compared to the loss to Toronto, which was four to one. But I think that just the energy, the intensity, the aggressiveness that Red Bulls came out with kind of showed it when United, we're going to have to at least match that or at least come close to it, or we're not going to have a chance to win the MLS Cup. We're going to get blown off the field uh, should we face Red Bulls again in the playoffs. And that got affirmed with kind of just how lackadaisical they looked at Toronto. And so, you know, th those two losses and losing the supporter shield, as I said, were probably a blessing for Atlanta United because it has changed their approach and it showed with their 3-1-0 uh, record in the playoffs so far. Doug, in the first leg against Red Bull, do you think – I've, I've read it in other outlets, but I want to get your take on it. Do you think Atlanta was – surprised that Red Bull elected not to press and instead uh, kind of sat back in a lower block? Yeah, they they kind of gave differing answers on that. They said that based upon how Red Bulls played at Columbus in the semifinals, the fact that they didn't come out and press didn't surprise them. But I think that the implication was they're not quite sure why they didn't press against Columbus. Um, and maybe didn't learn from that against them at Mercedes-Benz Stadium. It seemed like an odd approach, but, I mean, Atlanta United made them pay, and, and we'll see what happens should the Red Bulls make the playoffs next year. Now, Doug, Portland has uh, did come down earlier in the season to get a 1-1 draw. Uh, the Mercedes-Benz is a very tough place to get a result to begin with. Now, it, what is the expectation with this Portland team from the team, it, it, are they worried? Or because Portland has done everything pretty much on the road, they beat Dallas on the road. They had this miracle in Seattle, obviously at KC to to get to where they are now. How, how does Atlanta deal with Portland on this on the road? Yeah, we haven't had a chance to talk to the players since Thursday about Portland, uh, but I, I did kind of write a story that talked about how both teams have flipped their personalities a little bit. Uh, the Timbers, you know, didn't score a whole lot of goals in the regular season, but in the playoffs against three of the league's better defenses have kind of found their scoring boots. So I think that particularly the three goals scored in the second half at Sporting KC is going to get Atlanta United's respect if they didn't already have it. Um, and Atlanta United is going to have to take them seriously. They're going to have to play 
against the Timbers with the same intensity that they showed against NYCFC and Red Bulls. If you score three goals at Children's Mercy uh, in the second half, they could one with, what was it, in the seventh or ninth minute of stoppage time. And Lenny nodded, it will be paying close attention to, to Portland and its offense. Doug, I'm not sure if this has been talked about yet, but with you, uh, with your connections, you know, with Atlanta United and you're in that locker room, um, has the, the, the departure of Tata Martino to the, the Mexican national team and the rumors of Miguel Almiron leaving for Europe, uh, maybe after this season, has that been a, a, something that the team can rally around? Yeah, it can. Uh, I, I don't know if Almiron leaving for Europe is something that they're going to rally around. But Tata Ossie from Mexico has definitely been a rallying point. Um, it, I don't think it has been a distraction. If it was, I think it would have been when they went on the road to Colorado and San Jose uh, in September and said they won both those games and had that three-goal rally to defeat San Jose. Um, but the players have talked about that not only do they want to win it for Tata, but they want to win it for themselves, for the franchise, and for the supporters. And, you know, it would be a shame, maybe a stain on Martino's resume, uh, if they can't win this MLS Cup, particularly since they're getting to do, getting that opportunity at home. Doug, what, are we expecting a a party in Atlanta um, come Saturday? I mean, I feel like this is an MLS Cup that is almost unprecedented in terms of, you know, 70,000 and it's the first time in this new format that you get a stadium so large. And the way that Atlanta United has kind of taken over the city, the game is going to be on Fox on primetime instead of the kind of the 230 slot that ESPN uh, usually takes in, in their years. And the All-Star game, I think we saw, what, like 200, 300 credentialed media or something like that. Um, just what are, what are you expecting in terms of just the atmosphere and all the uh, off-the-field stuff for MLS Cup? Well, I think the city is ready. I think the city wants to uh, wants to explode. Monday, the uh, Atlanta City Council is going to proclaim Atlanta United Day. Uh, they're encouraging all city employees to wear their Atlanta United gear for the rest of the week. Uh, there should be a lot of tailgates in the Gulch, which is an area near the stadium, and at the Home Depot backyard, which is on the other side of the stadium. Every bar uh, in the in the city and in the West End, which is where Mercedes-Benz Stadium is going to be. Is going to have watch parties. Uh, it's going to be a good time. Um, I mean, the city really, it's hard to describe how much it has embraced Atlanta United, but if you drive around, you look at the bumper stickers on the cars, you look at the magnets, you look at the flags, you look at what people are wearing. Atlanta United rivals, uh, you know, probably University of Georgia for merchandise sales, just for that pride that the supporters have in the team. It's It's been a really interesting kind of phenomenon these first two years and if they were to win the mls cup i'm really curious to see what's going to happen in year three doug you you kind of hit on it right there for me but i wanted to ask you where does atlanta united rank in the atlanta sports hierarchy right now are they number one number two are they they're three uh, uh where do they sit amongst fan interest uh you know falcons braves and georgia which have been here for ages uh, are one, two, and three. Uh, but in two short years, Atlanta United has has really crept up. Uh, I think it's probably surpassed the Hawks already. Uh, you know, Georgia Tech is its own thing. 
Um, it's, it's probably on par with Georgia Tech. And again, if it wins the MLS Cup, I think it will it'll surpass Georgia Tech. And that's not a disrespect to the Yellow Jackets. That's just a, a function of page views and things like that that I see. Um, and, and really kind of get those people who are casual fans or who are becoming developing an interest in soccer into full-blown fans for, for next year. Now, Doug, what's really interesting storyline-wise is the city of Atlanta is with sports. Obviously, you know, the Hawks having never won anything, Atlanta blowing the 28-3 lead a couple seasons ago in the Super Bowl, the Braves not winning since 95, I believe. I mean, there, there's a huge part of the city that's just wanting to celebrate a championship, and Atlanta United has an opportunity to do something very special and the, the cultural dynamic of soccer being this thing in Atlanta is just so different. I mean, it, yeah, as you alluded to two years, it's just crazy. And do you, did you think Arthur bank and everybody at Atlanta United had expected within two years, they would be this popular? Yeah. If you're 22 to 23 years old and grew up in Atlanta, you have yet to see someone win a title. Um, and that's a little sad. Uh, but when Arthur Blank bought this team at the press conference uh, to announce the franchise back in uh, April of 2014, he promised the supporters that were already there um, that he was going to do whatever it takes to put a winner on the field. And they went out and uh, the search firm found Darren Eels of Tottenham Hotspur, who was like number two or number three in charge of, of that franchise, I think. Um, to come and be president. They got Carlos Bocanegra as the technical director. Uh, Paul McDonough, who led the expansion franchise of Orlando, to come and, and kind of oversee a lot of day-to-day -day things. And then Gerardo Martino, which proved to be, you know, a curious hire at first, not a bad hire, but a, a definitely a curious hire because of his just lack of familiarity with the United States and MLS, but his pedigree and it's proven to be just a wonderful hire. All, all the players, with the exception of Hector Viaba, who were signed after Martino was hired, have, have pointed to him as being the reason that they came here, or a reason that they came here. Viaba was signed long before Martino was hired. Um, and they just, you know, McDonough and Bocanegra and Darren and Martino put them together, and they've yet to miss on but just a couple of players that just really didn't pan out or haven't yet panned out. Everyone else has worked. It's been unbelievable. All three DP signings, now four uh, or five uh, with Barco um, as they bought down other players have worked. You know, Barco hasn't probably realized his potential yet, but he's only 19. And it's very rare for teams at MLS to hit on all three designated players, but Atlanta United has. And you put all that together, you put, Arthur Blank's history with the Falcons and the fact that he has put his money where his mouth is every time supporters knew that he was going to do exactly what he said. He was going to do everything he could to put a winner on the field. And so they could invest emotionally and financially in this team with an understanding that one way or another, this is going to be a good product. We don't know if it's going to win an MLS cup in its second year, but if we put our money and our emotions into this, chances are it's going to be something good. And so far, that has been the case. Well, Doug, I think the guys here at Uncle Sam's Slugger Podcast, we're excited 
for MLS Cup to be in Atlanta. I think it's the one place we really want to see uh, MLS be showcased. Um, thank you for joining us again. Uh, go ahead and give us a shameless plug. Plug away everything so the fall uh, the <laughs> listeners can uh, follow you uh, for the hype leading up to MLS Cup. Okay, um, you can follow me on Twitter at Doug Robertson AJC, on Facebook at Atlanta United News Now. I have a podcast called Southern Fried Soccer Podcast. Uh, it comes out usually after games, but I'll probably have a couple this week. You can find that on iTunes. You can be a digital subscriber to the Atlanta Journal Constitution for as low as 99 cents, and you can get uh, all of the Atlanta United coverage as well as every other sport in the city politics, economics, lifestyle, everything. Uh, it's a great bargain. It's cheaper than a, uh, you know, a can of Coke or Pepsi or whatever your ch- beverage of choice might be. Uh, so I hope that you'll consider that and at least follow me on Twitter. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Doug, and, and enjoy the game. Thank you very much. Y'all take care. Now, before we move on to Jamie Goldberg to give us the kind of the Portland side of things, Jake and Armand, I mean, this has to be the biggest MLS Cup in history, right? If I'm Don Garber, I'm shedding a tear uh, when the National Anthem is going on or something like that. When the TIFO goes over or something like that. This is – this is a look, people under, uh, did not expect Atlanta to be a hit. I mean, all these people saying Atlanta wouldn't be a hit at all. And now that the stadium is full, 70,000, taking over the city. MLS Cup, you know, guys, I think for the first time in a very long time, MLS Cup feels like a big deal. I don't know about you guys. When was it a big th- deal the first time? Um, I feel like um, some of the ABC games are a big deal, but, you know. No, think- this is – I'm sorry. This is the first MLS Cup. I know – here, here's here's the second. This is the second one behind Toronto, Seattle, two seasons ago when it was on Fox primetime. Yeah, I agree. Steve. The stars kind of aligned for this one. I mean, you have it's Atlanta hosting. You have Portland. You have it on Fox, so it's gonna be in primetime. You're gonna have seventy-two thousand plus uh, at at the Benz, and Atlanta is arguably the most attractive team to watch in MLS right now. And yet I, I agree with Armand. Don Carper is shedding a tear when that, when that uh, national anthem signs or uh, sign is sung, because this is going to be the best, the best advertisement, if you will, for this league to date. And this is, this is massive for the league. By the way, do you do you guys know the uh, highest attended MLS Cup before this? No, sixty thousand. Yeah, but where is it, Stephen? Seattle. Nope, Gillette. 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 October twentieth, two thousand two. LA Galaxy beat New England Revolution one zero in front of sixty one thousand. Oh, but that was was that not during the time in which the stadium was bounced around to neutral sites? Yeah, that was that that was a neutral site. So, so I mean, that stars align for MLS that one. Tried, yeah, I guess MLS tried making like a like the Super Bowl, and then they realized that might not be the best idea because soccer is not that much popularity. But I feel like this is such a big a spectacle. You know, seventy thousand, and remember the All Star game was a massive spectacle as well. And that's just an All Star game. I can't imagine what an actual competitive game will bring. Well, up next, Jamie Goldberg. 
Joining us right now is Jamie Goldberg. She is a Portland Timbers and Thorns beat reporter for the Argonian, co-host of Soccer Made in Portland. You can follow her on Twitter at Jamie B. Goldberg. Jamie, thanks for joining us. How's it going? <laughs> really busy, um, but it's doing well. Thanks for having me on. Any, any, anytime, Jania. I know it's been a busy uh, couple of weeks for you. Um, the Timbers are headed to the MLS Cup once again. Um, we want to jump back, though, to the beginning of the season with a new head coach in Savarese. What was the expectation uh, for this group? Yeah, I, I think the expectation was that they would make playoffs. There was enough players coming back from 2017 when the Timbers finished first in the Western Conference to, to believe that they had enough talent uh, to still be a playoff team for this not to completely be a transition year. Uh, I mean, they had Larry, Chara, Blow, Ridgewell coming back. So their core was still there, even though the Timbers had um, moved on from Darlington Nagby and made that trade in the offseason. Um, but but obviously, with any new coach, you, you expect that it would take time in the first five games of the season uh, weren't really good enough, especially those first two games where the Timbers tried to continue with the 4-2-3-1, um, were blown out in New York, and, and Savaresti quickly had to move away from that formation. Uh, at that point, I, I think there was a little bit of worry about what direction the season was going to go. Um, but they go on the 15-game run, sort of, uh, quickly um, change that perspective, have a little bit of a downturn in August and September. And um, th- there was a point in October where it was clear that this team was going to be in playoffs. I-, I think it's probably exceeded everyone's expectations for them to get this far. Yeah, l- looking at the season, it was kind of a hot and cold situation where you had, you know, the beginning of the season was very, you know, cold and yet the month of August be really bad for for the Timblers, Timbers. But was Severesi ever on the hot seat? Do you think at some point he could have gone if the season, especially after the first five games, had not gone on this 15-game tear? I don't think he was ever on the hot seat. I mean, of course, if this team had just completely collapsed this year and, and had um, finished 8th, ninth, 10th in the Western Conference, you know, then maybe. Um, but I, I think you're always looking at this with him coming in sort of late in the offseason, not having – as much say in building the roster as I think any coach would have liked, um, that the Timbers were always going to have to give him a, a year or two uh, to sort of see if this was going to pan out. It would be a little bit unfair to have him inherit a team and then things not go right and then immediately part ways and not really give it the amount of time uh, that it needs that they needed to give him to see if he was the right choice. Um, so there, I don't think there was any point in this season, given the form and given how the Timbers did rebound from that five-game um, winless streak early in the year, um, where there was ever any question that he would be potentially fired or, or let go during this season. I think even in August and September, when it looked like the Timbers might not even make playoffs, everyone was sort of viewing that as a disappointment, um, but expecting that Sagaresi would be back for another year to see with more time in the offseason to sort of build his roster and um, having a Justin now to Portland, whether he could turn things around. Obviously, at this point, uh, <laughs> that is completely um, you know, not on the table anymore. Um, but I, I never felt like this season there was a chance that he was going to be parting ways with the club. Jamie, during the playoffs, what was the one point where uh, you thought, oh, wow, this team could really actually end up going to MLS Cup? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it was after the Seattle game. Uh, I think you look at the end of the season, the turning point for the Timbers really was that RSL game on the road at the end of the regular season. That's when you started to wonder, yeah, maybe this team's figured it out. Maybe they know how to win on the road, which is going to be crucial in the playoffs. You, they got the best possible draw they could have in the knockout round against Dallas. I, I think there was a lot of confidence going into that game. Um, obviously, Dallas is a good team, but they were fading. So given that the Timbers had shown they could win on the road against Salt Lake, uh, there was a decent amount of confidence going into that game that they could also go on the road and win against Dallas. Uh, so that wasn't super surprising. I think no one really expected them to beat Seattle, given that Seattle had won 14 of 16 games to close out the regular season. I, I mean, they were the hottest team in MLS. And then the way the Timbers do it with that crazy second half in the Western Conference semifinals and then penalty kicks on the road in Seattle, uh, you start to get that belief that, yeah, this team can win on the road. This team can win against good teams. Um, and we know back from the, their run in 2015, it's all about form in the playoffs. It's all about confidence. And this team clearly showed that they have that uh, in that Seattle win. So looking ahead, traveling to Mercedes-Benz, you uh, the Portland Timbers were able to do that June 24th this past season had a 1-1 draw. What are the expectations going into a hostile environment in front of the expectations that Atlanta has? I mean, Portland will be playing the underdog, will be on the road once again, and all through these playoffs, Portland seems to have been able to get every result needed on the road. Yeah, I think the club's going to have confidence going into this and belief just because they've shown they can win on the road, and they showed when they went to Atlanta. Uh, they, I think they were one of only five teams this year that got a draw in Atlanta. Um, I think there was two teams that got wins there. Um, but overall, Atlanta was really, really good at home. So I, I think the Timbers came out of that June game feeling really good about that result. And I think that and the fact that they've shown that they can win on the road in this playoff run is giving them some confidence going to this game. Now, in that June game, it was a very defensive sort of uh, uh, approach from Savarese. I think they played um, a 5-3-2. Yeah, I think they played a 5-3-2. They uh, sort of gave Atlanta possession and just tried to, you know, I think they were happy with a draw coming out of that game. It's going to be different in MLS Cup. They can't really just play for a draw or point on the road, they're going to have to find a way to win to be able to win that trophy. So I'm not sure if we'll see a different approach. I think it's probably more likely we'll see them go with something similar than the, that they've gone with during this playoff run, the 4-2-3-1, a little bit more attack-oriented. And I'm not sure how that's going to play out against Atlanta. Atlanta's a very, very good team. They're obviously very good at home. They're on a great run as well. Um, the Timbers are the underdogs going into this, and I, I don't think uh, – it would make sense for it to be any other way. Atlanta has shown this season just how good they are, and they deserve, based on that performance, to be the favorites going to this game. But I do think the Timbers, given that they haven't lost to Atlanta this year and that they've been able to go on the road throughout this playoff season and, and get results, I, I think that is giving them confidence and belief uh, going into this game. Now, Jamie, regarding some off-the-field stuff uh, for MLS Cup, I know there was a, a joint uh, supporters group, a kind of letter sent out, by the uh, last four uh, team supporters groups uh, talking about the uh, MLS away uh, allocation, how the, a lot of pe- uh, people were citing how Portland was only given, I think, around 1,300 seats by MLS. Uh, do you have any in- insight or update on what's going on uh, with that? 
Yeah, um, I've reached out to MLS on it. They told me that they're going to get back to me with a 